This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading, which is from Acts chapter 4, 23 through 32. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you were to walk into my office at New City and look at my bookshelf, you would see a picture, uh, a picture of an intense but peaceful-looking German man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the reason why it's there is because Alana won't let me have it at our house, understandably so. Uh, and, And the reason why it's there really is because Since I began studying his life in college, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been somewhat of a mentor to me through his writings. And in 2013, I bought a tiny paperback by him called The Prayer Book of the Bible. And this book dramatically changed my life. Now, when this book was published, it was intended to be Bonhoeffer's plea to the church to return to the Psalms as the source the source book of their spirituality. Now you can imagine, in 1940, the Nazis didn't take too kindly to Dietrich Bonhoeffer publishing a book urging Christians to start praying a very Jewish book called the Book of Psalms. And so first they, they fined him. They said, they, they threatened to find. They said, if you publish this, uh, we're gonna come down on you. All this did for Bonhoeffer was urge him all the more that this book needed to go public. And so three years later, he was arrested for his anti-Nazi views, and eventually he was hung in 1945. Now, this is my question. In light of the imminent danger, in light of the fearful opposition, why did he publish this book? Why was it so important for him to risk his life to plead with Christians that they would take up the book of Psalms? Well, to use his own words, 
where he states his conviction, he says this. Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. That's my goal for this summer in the Psalm series. I want us, as we return to the book of Psalms for our private and our public prayers, to experience, to enjoy some of this incomparable treasure that the book of the Psalms is, but also to experience some of its unsuspected power. And so today we're going to look at three questions. First, why pray the Psalms? Then, who prayed the Psalms? And finally, how do we pray the Psalms? Why pray the Psalms? Then, who prayed the Psalms? And finally, how do we pray the Psalms? Now, Bonhoeffer's day was not unlike the day uh, of the early church, where we find ourselves situated in this text in Acts 4. And so if you have your Bible or your worship folder, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to look at this briefly together. I wish we could spend more time in this text because it's so significant to see how the church actually takes the Psalms and uses them in their life of prayer. Now, to give you a little bit of a backdrop, Jesus' fledgling followers, uh, this church that he's created and built is, is in a situation where they're just now beginning to experience persecution. Two of their leaders, Peter and John, were just arrested for healing and preaching in the name of Jesus. And when they were released, they went back to their friends and they told them what happened, which kicked off an impromptu prayer meeting. And so that's where we pick up in this passage. Look with me at verse 24. This is what they prayed. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, pause. Now, with fearful persecution pressing in on them, where does the church turn to find language for prayer? The Psalms. Look with me again at verse 25, where they begin praying from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so as they pray Psalm 2, they're identifying with God, the Lord, and his anointed, his Christ, his son, Jesus. And as they experience this solidarity with them, they're encouraged by Psalm 2. And we could go on to look at how they take this psalm and they use it to, to re-express their experiences to the Lord in prayer and, and to use it to buttress their confidence that God is with them. But before we do that, I kind of want to take a step back and just ask the question, why? Why was it the, the knee-jerk response of the early church to pray the psalms? Why was it that under this pressure of persecution, it prompted them to lift their voices together in prayer to the Lord using Psalm 2? Why was it that when the early church was persecuted, they turned to the Psalter for support? And that's what we're going to look at. Now, when I say Psalter, I, I often tell our students, I don't mean the thing that you sit next to your pepper shaker. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but this is what I mean by that. The Psalter is this collection of prayers and praises that's appropriately placed right at the heart of our Bibles. And this book of Psalms is intended to cultivate in us a heart of prayer. Now, I'm convinced that the Psalms are the most important book of the Old Testament. You could argue with me, but I'm convinced of that. And this is why. The New Testament quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. In fact, in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are more than 400 citations, quotations, and allusions to the Psalms. You could barely turn a page in your New Testament and not read uh, the Psalms somewhere. That's significant. And it begs the question, why, in writing the New Testament, did the apostles turn to the Psalter to describe who Jesus was? Why was there this apostolic impulse to go directly to the book of Psalms more than any other place in the Old Testament when they wanted to articulate to the world who Jesus is and what he came to do? Why the Psalms? Well, in order to really answer that question, we have to look at who prayed the Psalms. Who prayed the Psalms? Well, for starters, the Jewish people had been praying the Psalms for millennia before Jesus. All of us know the story of Jonah and the whale, really the big fish. Uh, and we know that while Jonah is in the belly of the fish, he cries out to the Lord. But did you know that if you looked at Jonah chapter 2, where that prayer is recorded, that Jonah is basically just taking this patchwork of psalms and putting them together, and that's what his prayer is? Why? Because to be Jewish meant that you prayed and meditated and sang the psalms. But more importantly that, than that, I want to look at the most psalm-soaked man that ever lived. I think that as we zoom in on the last week of Jesus' life before his death, we're going to see how Jesus was saturated with the Psalms. Now, many of you know his story. Uh, Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey. And as he's riding in, uh, a Jewish crowd is collected around him, and they're crying out, they're singing, they're shouting, they're rejoicing. And this is what they're saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A direct quotation from Psalm 118. Move on a little further. A few days later, Jesus is eating the Last Supper with his disciples, uh, the Passover meal. And, and I love this because Matthew records in Matthew chapter 26, it says, when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. First of all, Jesus sings hymns. That's pretty cool, right? Uh, second of all, I want to know what hymn is he singing? Well, almost all scholars agree that the hymn he would have been singing would have been the traditional song that they would sing right uh, after taking the Passover meal, which was Psalms 113 through Psalms 118, called the Hallel or the Hallelujah. So Jesus, get this, in, in the most intense time in his life, he's looking at his own death, imminent death in the face, and this is the last time he's going to spend with his closest friends in the world. What does he do? He sings a psalm with them. That's amazing to me. After they sing a hymn, they go out, uh, and he leads his followers to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he goes off by himself, and he prays for a little bit, 
And we all know this prayer. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, as Jesus prays, uh, let this cup pass from me, he's fully aware that, the, that this phrase, the cup, is a metaphor in the book of Psalms for God's anger, his holy anger that he pours out on sinners. In, in Psalm 75, verse 8, it says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And so Jesus knows as he's saying, let this cup pass from me, he knows what this cup really means. And he also knows he doesn't deserve to drink this cup. He knows, though, that he's going to drink this cup, not for his own sake, but for your sake. He knows that he's going to drink this cup in love for us, and he's going to drink it down to the dregs every last drop. And as Judas comes, he betrays Jesus. Jesus is wrongfully condemned, beaten, and crucified. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, gasping and grasping for words that can articulate his agony, he cries out in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is remarkable that the God-man enduring the most heinous agony you could ever imagine reaches for the Psalms and recites them in prayer to his father. Now, quick sidebar, because I think this is significant. Neurologists who study the effect of traumatic events on the brain have shown that this, this speech-slash-language area of the brain called Broca's region, it actually kind of goes offline when you experience a traumatic event, which is why people who have experienced trauma have a hard time uh, speaking about it. They find themselves uh, wordless. And so as Jesus is hanging on the cross, enduring the most traumatic experience a human being has ever faced, his brain is most likely malfunctioning. He's a human. And, and while his brain, is, his, his speech region is kind of going offline, what does he do? How does he possibly find words to articulate his pain to God? He grabs from the Psalms. How? How is this possible? Well, Jesus lived a life immersed in the book of Psalms. So immersed in the Psalms that like a sponge when it's wrung out, Jesus, in the worst week of his life, he is squeezed and pressed and he bleeds Psalms. And it's important to see that Jesus' prayers, regardless of the fact that he was praying the Psalms, weren't actually answered. Right? The Father didn't give Jesus his ear. His question, God, would you let this cup pass from me, was answered with a piercing no. And the reason is, is because as the father turned his ear from his son, he made it so that he could turn his ear towards us. And so Jesus willingly, out of committed love to his father and out of compassionate love for you, went to the cross 
Jesus, in his agony, his cries went unheard so that in our agony, our cries could be heard. And Jesus cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? So you and I could be brought in. But this isn't the end of the story. In fact, Jesus, with his dying breath, cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the only way to know what's really going on here is if you realize that that's a quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5. Because in the full verse of that psalm, it's amazing what he's actually saying. This is what it says. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. With Jesus' last words, he expresses confidence that death will not have the last word. Jesus knows that his father's going to raise him from the dead because death could not hold him. And so Jesus uses Psalm 31 to express that, to cry out to his father, trusting that in his darkest hours, the father's going to sustain him and strengthen him through the words of this psalm. Now, it's important for us to note that not only is Jesus saturated with the psalms, but the psalms are saturated with Jesus. This is why it was so easy for him to take the psalms on his own lips is because they're about him. In fact, after his resurrection, one of his first appearances with his disciples, he's, he's walking on the road to Emmaus and he says this to his disciples. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. He singles out the psalms. And, and so the reason why this is is because Jesus was saturated with the Psalms, but the Psalms were saturated with Jesus. And so to answer my question from earlier, why was it second nature for the church to cry out in Psalms when they were being pressed? Well, because they knew that Jesus was all about the Psalms and that the Psalms were all about Jesus. And so we see this, that in the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit floods his church, Peter stands up to preach his very first sermon, and guess what he chooses for his text? Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And, and after this sermon, the very next verse, at the end of the, the sermon, it says this, and Peter's sermon that that day, 3,000 were added to the number of the church. And in the very next verse, we read this famous text, Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now notice it doesn't say that the early church devoted themselves to prayer. It says they devoted th themselves to the prayers. I'm sincerely convinced that this could mean nothing other than God's given prayer book to the church, the book of Psalms. And, and if, you don't, if you don't buy into it, look at the two chapters later in our text for this morning, Acts chapter 4, we see them doing just that, praying the prayers. And so I would, I would love to spend the rest of this time just showing you how the New Testament unpacks psalm after psalm after psalm, but bear with me for just one, one more. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. First of all, that's amazing. 
but it goes on. It goes on to quote Jesus as praying Psalm 22. He says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So not only did Jesus pray the Psalms, but he is currently praying the Psalms at the right hand of the Father. So to really answer this question, why did the early church respond to persecution by praying the Psalms? Well, first, because they learned it from their Psalm-soaked Savior. Second, because the Psalms, because Jesus was saturated with the Psalms, and the Psalms are saturated with Jesus. But third, because Jesus is presently praying the Psalms in the presence of his Father this very moment. Why wouldn't we join him in praying and praising our Father with the words of the Psalms right here, right now? And so you might be thinking, okay, if this is so important, why haven't I heard about praying the Psalms before? I actually don't know. But listen to Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century prince of preachers. This is what he says. There was a time when the Psalms were not only rehearsed in all the churches from day to day, but they were so universally sung that the common people knew them, even if they did not know the letters in which they were written. There was a time when bishops would ordain no man to the ministry unless he knew David from end to end and could repeat each psalm correctly. Even councils of the church have decreed that none should hold a church office unless they knew the whole Psalter by heart. The laborer, while he held the plow, sang hallelujah. The tired reaper refreshed himself with the psalms. And the vine dresser, while trimming the vines with his curved hook, sang something of David. There is an incredibly rich pedigree of praying the psalms in the history of God's people. I mean, this is amazing that people would be in the fields just belting out David's greatest hits, right? And not only that, but as a seminary student, um, I read this, that you couldn't be ordained to be a pastor unless you could or recite the entire book of Psalms verbatim from heart. And I feel a little bit of fear and trembling at that. Maybe excitement. As Damien and I were talking about this quote, we were talking about why the Psalms, though? Why not memorize the whole letters of Paul? Why not memorize the Gospels? Well, hopefully I've shown you enough at this point that the Psalms are of utmost importance to Jesus himself and that Jesus is of utmost importance to the Psalms. So hopefully by now you're convinced. And hopefully by now you're asking, okay, okay, so how do we pray the Psalms? And I wanna say that over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at specific Psalms and see how to pray them uh, uniquely, different genres of Psalms. But in the meantime, I wanna say that we pray the Psalms with regularity and with repetition. We pray the Psalms with regularity and with repetition. Now, when I say with regularity, this is what I mean. I mean that we have a regular rhythm of praying through all 150 Psalms, a steady, a steady Psalm diet, if you will. Now, if, if you uh, wanna hear it from Bonhoeffer's lips, this is what he said. Only with daily use does one appropriate this divine prayer book. And so here's two suggestions. 
One, we all are already reading a psalm every week on Saturday in our CBR, Community Bible Reading. So right now we're in Psalm 27, and you could take Psalm 27, you could wake up tomorrow morning, and you could pray Psalm 27, and do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you start with another psalm and do it all over again. And you would know that psalm, you'd be so immersed in that psalm that you would eventually find yourself praying that psalm in your mind and in your heart when you weren't really expecting it. Here's another option, this is what I do. You could take this fancy ribbon that most of you have in your Bibles, and you could start at Psalm 1, just put it in there, and in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, you just pray that first psalm three times. And then the next day, you move the ribbon to the next one, and you just kind of go through the psalms. Now, I miss days. Absolutely, I do. But I just pick up wherever the ribbon left me off. And I get through all 150 psalms, and then I start back over again. And in this way, I'm getting a regular, a steady diet of the psalms. I'm praying them with regularity. Now, to give you more encouragement, Bonhoeffer goes on to say this. The more deeply we grow into the psalms, and the more often we pray them as our own, the more simple and rich our prayer will become. And this means a lot, because if you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's hard to argue with a life well-lived. And this is a little glimpse at at his life. Uh, Less than two years before his death, he was imprisoned. And while he was in prison, he actually wrote a letter to his parents. And in the letter, he was talking about how people pass their time when they're in prison. And in fact, his cell, the person who had it before him, had written above the the cell door, it said, in 100 years, this will be over. And so I zoom in and I want to know, well, how does Bonhoeffer pass the time? And this is what he says. I read the Psalms every day as I have done for years. I know them and love them more than any other book. Now Bonhoeffer's fellow prisoners, uh, it's recorded that they were impressed by him because when Berlin was being bombed, he had this calmness, this serenity about him. And and as Bonhoeffer was going to be hanged, the last recorded words we have coming out of his mouth are these. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. See, Bonhoeffer, like his king Jesus, was a psalm-soaked man. And so he faced imprisonment and death with a calm confidence. Do you want that kind of sturdy soul? Then pray the psalms with regularity. And finally, pray the psalms with repetition. Pray the psalms with repetition. Now, what I mean by repetition is I mean you take the words of the psalm and you repeat them as your own. Okay, and so as we take these words, we make its words our words. We read them out loud. We reread them out loud. We paraphrase them. We memorize them. We decorate them uh, with your own prayers like you would a Christmas tree. And, And you so immerse yourself in the Psalms to where their words are beginning to shape and form your soul. As we pray them with repetition, this is what happens. My favorite theologian, a fellow psalm lover, Augustine of Hippo, who who actually, it took him 25 years to write his commentary on the book of Psalms. 25 years. He began the year after he was ordained to be a pastor. This is what he says. If the psalm prays, you pray. 
If the psalm laments, you lament. If the psalm exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. But what do you do when the psalms express something that you don't feel? You learn to feel what the psalms express. Now, the psalms are kind of like Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid, okay? You all remember, wax on, wax off, Daniel's done, right? And, and so this is what the psalms do for us. They train us with this regular rhythm, with this habitual practice of praying to do what is most unnatural to us. So that when the time comes where we need to weep with those who are weeping or to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, we have words, we have a reflex to do what is most fitting. So that in that moment, we know how to praise rather than grumble. We know how to confess rather than hide. We know how to lament rather than complain. And we know how to give thanks rather than boast. The Psalms train us in this life of prayer, as we repeat those words as our own. Now, in closing, I want to tell you a quick psalm story from my own life. One night, I woke up uh, 2 a.m. or something like that to what I thought were gunshots outside. So I'm, I'm kind of coming out of a daze, and, and adrenaline is throbbing through my body, and and I'm thinking, what do I need to do next? And wondering what that noise was and listening to hear if I hear anything else. And, and as I'm laying there in my bed and my fight or flight response system is going online, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do right now? And just as adrenaline was pumping through my body, the words of Psalm 121 began pumping through my mind and my heart. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep you your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And as I'm laying there and this psalm is, is resonating through my, my mind and my heart, my body begins calming down. My fear response system begins uh, downgrading and going offline. And as I lay there trusting these words of my father that he is my keeper, that he's the one that's gonna keep my life and my wife's life, as I trust him that I can slumber because he never does, I'm able to fall back asleep. And so with that, would you pray with me? Father, in the day of our trouble, we call upon you, for you answer us. You abound in steadfast love to all who call upon you. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, for you alone are God. Holy Spirit, teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our heart to fear your name. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you, O Lord, our God, with our whole heart. 
and we will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward us. In your name we pray.